This is The Guardian. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly Europod, rounding up what happened in all of the leagues. You don't need to have followed any of it this season. Just listen to this pod and impress your friends with your continental knowledge. We'll start with Kylian Mbappe. How much power does he actually have? Why is Emmanuel Macron involved? And just how important can or should a footballer actually be? In Italy, AC Milan, the youngest team to win the league since 1994, with Giroud and Ibrahimovic playing up front. Just how old are the rest of the team? In to push them close, there's the obligatory Jose chat on the eve of the Europa Conference final and a great escape for Salernitana. We'll round up Spain and Germany, tell you things like who's qualified for which European competition in a more interesting way than just looking it up yourself and try and decide if Lewandowski will swap the Bundesliga for Barcelona. We'll spend as much time as we can talking about that Mario Balotelli goal, seven, brackets, seven stepovers and then a Rabona. Utterly ridiculous. All that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, a truly continental feel, live from Paris, Philippe Auclair. Good morning to you, my dear Max. Uh, live from Greece, Nikki Bandini. Hi, how are you? Very good. Live from Essex, Mark Langdon. Hi, Max. And live from Brixton, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Barry. Hi, Max. Uh, Neil asks, is it true that Barry's new deal with the pod allows him to influence the signing of pod guests, sack <laughs> Max, and appoint the Guardian editor of his choice? Uh, Danny says, how far a run-up is Philippe going to need to go in on Mbappe and PSG? Um, we talked about it a bit yesterday, but I, I think it's worth carrying on the, the, the conversation. Sean Ingle wrote uh, a really good piece saying, there are no good guys here, only a gnawing unease that the laws of economic gravity are being defied to the further detriment of the game we love. Um, Philippe, what's Emmanuel Macron doing? Is that like Boris Johnson calling Harry Kane and saying, I think you should stay at Spurs? Now? <laughs> uh, first thing to know is that Emmanuel Macron is an Olympique de Marseille fan and has been pictured on holidays wearing a, a replica shirt of the OM. So the fact that he is um, so close to Kylian Mbappe uh, obviously is um, something that... Um, will surprise a few, I suppose. But uh, Mbappé, you know, uh, he basically let it know that uh, he had had several conversations uh, with Emmanuel Macron, who found the time between the presidential election, uh, the general election coming in June, uh, the war in Ukraine, the crisis of the cost of living, and all these various details of his uh, everyday job, found the time to talk to uh, Mbappé to uh, try and convince him to stay in France, and that apparently it played a role 
uh, in Mbappe's decision to remain with Paris uh, until uh, 2025. And uh, I know it might surprise you to to hear that, but they they have been in touch quite a few times before. Uh, Kilian was also, uh, I wouldn't say a regular guest, but well, actually, yeah, a regular guest to the Elysee Palace. And um, he's in his element, basically. Um, you know, he's only 23 years of age. Uh, I, I, actually, did you see any of his press conference? I didn't see it. I mean, I've read the quotes, but I didn't see it. It's absolute. He's absolutely uh, astonishing. I mean, it's true that when he was a kid, when he was, I think, 13, 14, and people already knew that he was going to become a superstar. In his home in Bondi, he would stage imaginary press conferences. And uh, he, would put the, he would put the questions to himself and answer them. <laughs> and if you listen to, to Mbappe uh, talking, it's, it's a bit like listening to uh, a very bright, up-and-coming young politician who is obviously going to become minister of this, prime minister, and perhaps even president of the republic. It's absolutely astonishing what he can do with a microphone in front of him. He was also, and I think that, that shows you a bit of the importance of, uh, of the news in France, he was the star guest of the equivalent of the nine o'clock news. They opened the program with him. Uh, he was on, on the show. Uh, they had people saying all these wonderful things about him and he had to react. And most people would have been terribly embarrassed about this. Not at all. He takes it all in his stride. He's just as at ease in front of a microphone or speaking to people as he is with a ball at his feet. It's just astonishing, the maturity. And that explains, in a way, why... All the information coming from Paris, which is the fact that he's going to have a lot of a say about what's going to happen at the club, is after all not that surprising when it comes down to him because he's truly unique and not just as, as a talent on the field. He's truly unique in the way he's building his own career and he's becoming now, he's going to be the focus at PSG. He's got a big, the biggest salary. Uh, I mean, the figures which have been quoted are insane. Uh, we're talking about 50 million euros per year net. I said net after tax. Uh, we're talking about a, a signing on fee, which apparently is in the region of well over 100 million euros, which is insane. Now, he's very careful himself. He's saying, you know, I'm not going to be the one who decides the next manager and so forth. But, but on the other hand, the fact that his new contract, uh, the announcement coincides with the announcement that Leonardo has been sacked and that probably Luis Campos, whom he knew, when he was at Monaco, is going to take the place of sporting director. Well, you know, okay, he hasn't asked for the captain's armband. It's still going to be Marquinhos. But apart from that, I don't think that any other player in the world, in history, bar Leo Messi at Barcelona after Pep Guardiola left, and he actually had a hand in choosing the managers and so forth, has wielded or will wield as much power as Kylian is going to wield at PSG. It's absolutely extraordinary. And again, it wouldn't make any sense. It's not a megalomaniac uh, trip by, by Mbappe. It seems to be like what's natural. He's a leader. I'm, I'm so sort of um, fascinated by the whole dynamic of this, Philippe. And I was reading the interview he gave to the Telegraph this morning and he's sort of really sort of focused on the French side of it. Like he's like, it's, he kept coming back to this idea, no, you know, I wanted to be in France. You've obviously mentioned that he had Macron call. I thought it was interesting, of course, his, his younger brother's on the books of PSG, I think, as well. Like, how, like, looking at this from, from, from I guess, from the French perspective, do you 
think that this is really about something to do with nationality and identity and roots over money. Do you think that's do you think that's real or do you think that's that's bluff? I, I, I do think it's real. Um and we have to remember as well that when his new contract expires in June twenty twenty five, it will be twenty six. Yes, yeah. <laughs> his his you know, his career will be you know, he he will be what halfway stage in his professional career, so he's got plenty of time to go to uh, see Florentino Perez, whom apparently he advised of his choice in a in a phone call. He called Perez and he explained to him in Spanish what his decision uh, was, and apparently it is true that it is this is it is a decision that he only took in the week before the announcement. Uh, he really waited and waited, and you know he's got a very small um, circle entourage of advisors. He doesn't have an agent as such. He's got his parents who've always been with him from the very beginning. And he's got his uh, solicitor, Delphine, um, uh, who is uh, also very important. But it's a decision that he took by himself. And the way he was speaking about it, um, I mean, the diplomacy is amazing. I mean, to come up, I mean, obviously, rehearsed lines saying that I, I didn't say no to Real Madrid. I said yes to Paris Saint-Germain, which is quite elegant. And then to say, basically, he answered the call of the capital of Paris and of the country. He actually used the word patrie, the motherland, the fatherland. So yes, it, it played a role. Uh, Thatcher of this young man is something which is almost incomprehensible anywhere else. You know, it might happen that in other countries where you've got perhaps less uh, countries which are less wealthy, uh, less powerful than France, it can be that the player suddenly becomes the embodiment of his own nation. It's very surprising to see this happening in a country like France. You know, I'm trying to think of an equivalent. What would it be? Who would it be in England? Well, I can't think of anybody. Who would be in Spain, in Italy? I think there was a time when it would have been Beckham for England, no? Mm, Obviously, that's, that time's Perhaps, gone. But there yes. was a time at peak Beckham when Beckham was, was that sort of figure in England. And Roy Keane in Ireland. I appreciate Ireland isn't quite the force, footballing force, France or England, but he he was the embodiment of sort of the sport in Ireland for a while. If he's having a terrible game, Mark, and then the manager substitutes him and Kylian Mbappe is very unhappy about this, what what happens then? Is the manager nervous to to substitute Mbappe? I mean, you're unlikely to take Mbappe off if you need a goal late on. I mean, it would be a, seems sort of on paper naive, but he could be having a stinker. I, I remember, I mean, there's been a couple of times in the last um, few seasons when Mbappe has been substituted and he's, been, he's let it be known that he's not been happy um, with, with that decision, and that was before he kind of ha- had this um, power. Now, I, I think what Mbappe wants is to, you know, win the Champions League with um, with, with, with Paris Saint Germain, or you know, just personally wants to win the Champions League. And I think he would understand, um, you know, that if he was having, you know, eight terrible games in a row, which. I can't remember him ever sort of doing before, then maybe the time comes when he has to step out of the team. But I think that, you know, this is more, I suppose, about trying to move away from that kind of superstar attitude in some respects that that Paris were um, buying players um, on reputation rather than, um, you know, their actual um, ability. And I think Mbappe was probably becoming as frustrated with anyone um, with maybe that attitude of others in that dressing room and, and that culture. Because although he... Um, he doesn't shy away from from the limelight. He also, I think, is you know dedicated to to football. And you maybe um, look at one or two others in in that dressing room, and it's not um, quite the same. I think it will be interesting to see 
who the next um, manager of um, Paris Saint-Germain is, assuming that Pochettino leaves. Um, Amorim of, of Sporting is, is the latest name um, to be linked with the job. Um, I, I would, I think, be surprised if it was kind of an elite coach. I don't know if Philippe's got the inside word yet, and I don't mean that sort of disparagingly towards Amorim, but he's somebody kind of on the way up, really, rather than um, an established figure. You've had sort of Thiago Motta um, be, be linked with, with that position as well. And I, I think that they probably are looking at trying to build something now that's maybe um, slightly more sustainable. And are you suggesting, Philippe, because he's so mature, it won't be the, it won't be the case? Because instantly I sort of think, well... It changes the whole dressing room because, you know, you can't be, if you're not mates with Mbappe, that might affect you. You know, like th- those kind of things, which are really kind of quite important. Not everyone loves each other in a dressing room, but it doesn't matter because the manager makes the decision. He's always been quite careful, I think, not to align himself with one particular clan. I mean, one of the problems of PSG uh, over the years has been the fact that you had very much uh, almost like a... In this very cosmopolitan squad, you, you had a few nuclei, so to speak, including the Brazilian nucleus, which has been quite disruptive over the years. And I think he's, he's tried and succeeded to put himself outside of that. I, I don't know how he's, actually, to be honest, <clears throat> how his teammates look at him. When they listen to him on the 8 o'clock news, when they see him uh, t- talking to Emmanuel Macron, I think they must all think, hmm, who's that guy? Who's that guy? Is he, is he really the guy who plays with us? Um, <laughs> but there is a real thing to, to bounce back on what Mark was saying, that it's almost like a kind of reboot of PSG, as if perhaps they had finally understood that the completely dysfunctional model or lack of that they had in place, that they've had in place since 2011, simply couldn't work any longer. So they've got to reboot. And the symbol of this reboot and one of the foundations of this reboot is the increased role of Kylian Mbappé in this. Uh, while we're on Liga, then, uh, let's just sort of uh, wrap it up for people who don't follow it uh, week by week. So PSG won the league, Marseille-Monaco in the Champions League, Rennes in the Europa League, Nice in the Conference League, Nantes won the Cup, and Bordeaux and Metz uh, relegated. Um, with Auxerre and, so Auxerre and Sochaux involved in a two-leg playoff. The winner of that plays a further playoff against St Etienne. The winner will play in the uh, top flight next season, and the loser goes into Ligue 2. Correct. Admirably summed up, Max. Thank you so much. Um, talk to us about Bibica Camara. Yeah. Uh, who Villa have signed from Marseille. Well, first of all, we can talk about the player. And I think everybody who's seen Bubakar Camara is only 22 years of age, who is not yet a French international, but that's only a question of time. And it's just a little bit of competition to get a, a starting place in the French midfield. Has been widely seen as uh, one of the great hopes of French football for uh, you know, for a number of years, actually, ever since he broke up in Marseille's first team. Um, he's an incredibly dynamic, uh, smart um, midfielder who can also play in defence. And to be honest, it's a major, major coup by Aston Villa. I mean, it's quite stunning, really. Um, it's not something that's gone down too well, because the idea of uh, a young man who was born in Marseille who joined the club when he was five years old, I believe, who went through all the teams with them, who has been really one of the fulcrums of that team, which has you know qualified uh, for the Champions League. And then suddenly, as they have qualified for the Champions League, they lose one of their best players, if not their best player, on a free as well, which shows that maybe not everything is done as it should be done at Marseille, but that's a different matter. 
And uh, so people have been extremely critical and wondering, why is he going to a, a mid-table club? Uh, why is he going to a, the club where there is no, uh, uh, there is no Champions League? What, why, why, why? And uh, the response that Boubacar Camera gave, I, I have to quote to you. It's, I, I've, I've tried to translate it as elegantly as I possibly could, but uh, he said, I'm quoting, I'm quoting myself here. Um, <laughs> Lies take the elevator when truth takes the stairs. Even if it takes longer, the truth always ends up on top. That's what he said to his critics. I, I think that in, in some ways this is worthy of another child of Marseille, you know, who talked about sardines and trawlers. But, but, yeah, I was thinking yeah, that. So this kind of gnomic response is, uh, I think, quite marvelous. And uh, I, I didn't know he was that kind of guy, to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, but Villa have got themselves a, a hell of a player, I suppose. And uh, what is surprising as well is that no other major clubs were, you know, on were after him. I mean, I can understand why Real Madrid, you know, they went for apparently for Tremeni, who is also fantastic. Uh, but so many other clubs in England could have done with a guy like that. Um, Manchester United being one of them. I think it would have been ideal for Arsenal as well. Um, but there you go. I mean, Villa, it's a real statement of intent as well to be able to, to sign a player like that. I think there are loads of European clubs are going to be very jealous of the villains. All right, well, it'll be fun to watch them next season. Now, that'll do for part one. Mm. Uh, part two, uh, we'll round up Serie A. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Michael says, will Barry's accent go full Dublin the way Wilson's did yesterday uh, when he went full Mackham uh, after the live show? Um, will you... Will you? I have never had a Dublin accent in my life. Right. Is that a grave insult? I don't intend to... St- well, I'm not from Dublin, so... I do have a, a pal of mine whose son is in college in Northern Ireland and he's just home for a week and I met him last night and he's basically gone from South London to full Ian Page <laughs> in the course of two years. Are you less, do you, do you sound less Irish than you used to? I mean, you don't sound particularly Cockney to me. No, I don't think so. I've just pretty much the same accent as I've always had. All right. So uh, that will be the accent you will hear at any of the live shows. 
uh, at Leeds on the 13th of June with Jonathan Wilson and John Bruin. Birmingham on the 15th with Jordan Jarrett Bryan and John Bruin. Manchester on the 19th with Lars Sivertson and Philippe. Uh, Mark Langdon, you're coming on the Ireland trip, aren't you, Mark? You're looking forward to it, the residency in Dublin? <laughs> I'm looking forward to it, slightly scared as to, to to what might happen, I suppose, during the show and afterwards. <laughs> we've got a, a, a night um, to, to stay over as well. But um, yeah, it should be good fun. Uh, Nikki, you're joining us in uh, at Hackney, aren't you, in London on Friday the 8th um, with Jonathan Wilson and Troy Townsend, Ellis James, Barney Ronay, Sid Lowe doing the 9th and Philippe. You're back with us in Glasgow with Jonathan Wilson on the 13th. Go to myticket.co.uk. Serie A then, Nicky. AC Milan win the title. Inter Napoli, Juve in the Champions League. Lazio and Roma in the Europa League. Fiorentina in the Conference League. Inter won the Cup. Calgary, Genoa and Venezia are relegated. Chiro Mobile top scorer, 27 in, in 31 games. AC Milan were, I mean, that was a great atmosphere. All their fans had their shirts off in the crowd is that every AC Milan game it's very judgmental Max like is that not a thing that you approve of seeing at football games I mean I don't I I don't mind at all and obviously you see some fans you know like some fans do it but I don't I don't think I've away at Sassuolo I don't think I've ever seen a whole away end shirtless Um, Look, uh, I wouldn't say that happens every game no not at all but I wouldn't say this was like a normal game in in any way you know we went to um, um, they went to Sassuolo. Just said we there. It's going to give off the impression of a Milan fan, which couldn't be much further than the truth. But um, <laughs> but they have been brilliant to watch this season. They've been they've been magnificent to watch. They've been a very easy team to to, to sort of get enthused about. And their fans went to this game in incredible numbers. There was these extraordinary scenes of Milano Centrale Station um, in in the morning with with the huge huge crowds. Which is actually, they were all wearing. A lot of them seem to be wearing black T-shirts at that time, which I imagine was was the ultra groups collaborating on that. They put on an extraordinary scenografia, great choreography in in the away end. It felt, you know, this happens in Serie A, um, sort of semi regularly. Teams like Juventus go away to, to smaller clubs, and you get an atmosphere that's not really a home game for the home team. But you don't normally get it like this. You don't normally get it where you've had you had a hundred thousand people in the online queue when tickets went on sale. You don't normally get this sort of level of of craziness. Going that's more than in the online queue for the Birmingham live show, I should point out. <laughs> it, it was it was a it was a level of intensity that was that was something, and I, I think it was sort of reciprocated on the pitch as well. I thought the players sort of really went with it, but there's so much enthusiasm behind this Milan side, even more than you would expect for a team. And there's good reason, right? They haven't won the league in 11 years. This is a team that's back on top of Italian football. They've waited a while, but I think the way that it's happened has generated even more enthusiasm because this isn't some sort of one-off season feeling of, oh, well, we got in so-and-so and so-and-so and, and, and they've scored a bunch of goals and we've won the league. It's a feeling of actually after some pretty dark years in the middle, including sort of years when they did spend a ton of money, the year when they went out and got Higuain in from Juventus and they signed Bonucci and, and, and there's been all sorts of sort of messy periods in that middle bit where they spent a lot of money and, and were not very productive with it. This has been almost, I think probably even more intense for it. It's almost been this rebirth through the pandemic. Like I was going back again before I wrote my my column on Monday and I think it's it's really extraordinary to see where things were right before Italian football stopped 
in 2020 because they were seventh and they just lost at home to Genoa and Stefano Pioli, who'd been hired as basically a short-term fix as manager because they'd hired Marco Giampaolo at the start of the season. That had been a disaster. They hired Giampaolo in, who was at the time viewed as this up-and-coming manager who would have bright ideas. And he came out in his press conferences and talked about, oh, we're going to play with our heads up football. And, and it was just crap. Bluntly, they were rubbish. And so they brought in Pioli to be this stopgap. And he was doing what you expect a stopgap to do. They weren't doing that well. Football stops in March and they come back in June and the rest of that season, they went um, 12 games, nine wins and three draws. So they, they, it was very much like in empty stadiums, this young team started to come together. The next season, they're second, they're back in the Champions League for the first time in seven years. And now this season, they take this, this final step and it's with their neighbours, Inter as the main title rival who you've sort of held off till the end. And it's with this extraordinary end to the season. I mean, winning all of, was it six or seven games in a row to end the season, but also the second half of the season, they've kept 12 clean sheets. They've been brilliant since January and the momentum behind this team with it being, I know you made your quip about Ibrahimovic and Giroud. It's a really young team. Like it's a really young team with a couple of old guys up front. It's It was the youngest team in Serie A in both the last two seasons. This season, I think it was the fourth or fifth youngest. So it's not the youngest anymore, but still, according to Opta, I think it's the youngest to win Serie A since they started keeping records in um, at the start of the three points for a win era. And so all of this sort of good vibes, good feeling, and on top of that, you've got an American investment group talking about spending 1.3 billion euros to buy the club. And so there's there's a real energy around Milan right now that's incredibly sort of, there's a sense of positive momentum that, that's really energizing. And I think that's probably why everyone was there with their shirts off, Max. It was a long, a long, serious answer to your question. No, no, no. It's great. Um, uh, Raphael, so, I, I mean, Giroud is wonderful. It's wonderful to watch Giroud. I mean, I think lots of people, Premier League viewers, have a soft spot for him, whether they're an Arsenal fan or, or, or a Chelsea fan or not. But I mean, he sort of looks... I mean, obviously he looks dashing, but sort of ageless as well, doesn't he? And a game that didn't ever rely on pace. Yeah, well, look, uh, Giroud is, is, I think, sort of, he's a fascinating example of, of what's gone on there, right? So one of the big turning points at, 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 in 2019-2020, they signed Zlatan Ibrahimovic and he came in and he was sort of not just a goal scorer, but he was this sort of, hey, there's this really young group of players. Here's someone who's been there and done it and he's going to tell people what's what. And the idea with Giroud was to buy the same thing this summer. And I don't think Giroud has ever been that firebrand who walks in and sort of lights a fire under anyone like like Ibrahimovic would want to do. But what he has done this season is he's just scored the most important goals. He's been the, the calm head when they've really needed something. He hasn't been wildly prolific. He did get to 11 goals in the end, which makes him the first player at Milan wearing the number nine shirt to hit double figures since people in Zaghi. There's been this curse of the number nine shirt, which he's broken. But he he's the goals that he did score it was like he only scored the most important goals they were losing one in the derby to me to inter earlier this year and they were deservedly losing they should have lost that game and Giroud scores twice in the blink of an eye and they win they were one nil down away to Lazio this uh, this spring and he scores the equalizer they go on to win in injury time now again away at Napoli as well they won one nil it was Giroud who scored the goal and now again on the last day of the season when you're thinking gosh they only needed a point against Sassuolo but you have to get that point and they start at 100 miles an hour with this big crowd behind them and and they don't score right away and you think maybe just maybe they get nervous but no it's Giroud again who scores the two goals he's been that guy he's been the one who just when you need a calm head who just put the ball in the net he's done it 
every time they've needed him to. That hasn't prevented Didier Deschamps from forgetting that Olivier Giroud even existed <laughs> for his list uh, for the Nations League. Um, whereas Boubacar Camara isn't there, but uh, Giroud isn't there. Uh, Nikki, what, does it have any impact um, or in, on what is going to happen with the club in terms of the new ownership and so forth? I mean, has anything progressed on, on that side? Um, I'm, I'm certain it doesn't help your selling negotiations to be able to present as the, you know, the, the, the marketing side of this. You can walk in and, and own as you as you've got this team that's just won the league. It helps for everything. Um, negotiations are ongoing. It does seem like it's sort of taken a bit of time, but 1.3 billion euro negotiations generally do. There's the expectation at Milan is that this this is going to happen. But I mean, you have to give credit from that side of things to Elliot who came in as the management group who took this club over from Lee Yong Hong who was this odd figure at an odd time when they'd been cast aside by Berlusconi the whole team was in chaos and under Elliot's um, leadership and, and they've really not been very sort of present I think this game was the first time Gordon Singer has even been at a game for Milan that group um, even Gazidis of course who, who came from Arsenal but also bringing Paolo Maldini on board and convincing Maldini to do it, by the way, because Maldini was approached before and didn't do it. Maldini, I think, and his relationship with Ricky Massara and their job as directors with recruitment and also how well they've collaborated with Pioli as a manager, that's a huge part of this story as well. So I think that whoever is owner of this club next season, if they do come in Redbird, they need to be thoughtful and not upend the apple cart because I think that those things, the symbiosis that's gone on between the board level and 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 the club level is really a big part of this story as well. We had lots of questions about uh, David Nicola, um, who is, uh, as Ethan says, the Sam Allardyce of Serie A, the real uh, <laughs> Aladici, isn't he? <laughs> um, uh, manager of Sal- Salernitana, uh, who had this sort of miraculous escape, right? All I've got in my head now is, of course, Sam saying if I was called Sam Aladici and I was thinking what if he was David Nichols would he would he be getting the international um, <laughs> attention that he yeah, needed yeah that's a good point David Nicola is this sort of extraordinary escape artist figure who's emerged initially because a few seasons ago he was at Crotone and they had I think nine points after 29 games and they got 20 in the last nine games and stayed up since then, he sort of helped Genoa and Torino stay up. I should say Crotone, he was in charge for the first bit where they didn't get all those points. Maybe it was 13 points, but they, yeah. And, and you know, but he fixed it at the end. And he helped Genoa and Torino stay up. And then this season, he comes into Slernitana. Slernitana, who've never stayed in the division uh, for two seasons in a row. have never been in Serie two seasons in a row. And when he came in, I think they had 13 points from 23 games, very much bottom of the table. And he saved them again. Um, so an extraordinary sort of figure in his consistent ability to dig teams out of holes, basically. I um, think it was sort of perfectly ridiculous that the last game of the season, when um, it was all in their hands, they'd done all the hard work. They went on a seven game unbeaten run. They actually got thumped four nil by Udinese. So they should have, they could have lost it. If Cagliari could just beat Venezia who were last in the league where everyone likes to talk about Biscotti and like results that are sort of, predetermined. They're both playing teams that don't have anything to play for and it's letting you kind of get walloped and, and Cagliari don't win. Sorry, can you explain Biscotti to me? I mean, I know what Biscotti <laughs> are, but in a footballing context, what does that mean? I feel like this must have Possibly. been talked about in, in that was, This, this is back in the Jimbo days. Max <laughs> in the what? Know what in, in the what? In the what? <laughs> Max, you're the, you're the only person on this podcast who doesn't know what a Biscotti is with regard to Syria. Well, the, the Swedes and Danes still haven't um, f- forgiven Italy for their 
um, biscotti in <laughs> what Euros was it? I can't remember now. No, it's it's the other way around. The Italians were the ones who got knocked out because the Swedes and the Danes shared one. Yes, yes, that's what I'm saying. That they had, yeah, they, they they kind of the Italians yeah. accused um, the two Scandinavian cousins of uh, playing out a mutually beneficial result. Yeah, a mutually beneficial result is a biscotto. You share a biscuit. You um, there's there's a there's a, there's a the etymology of it. I think is actually supposed to go back to to horse racing and the idea that you right. might give a horse a, a special biscuit that stops it from performing up to its. Um, uh, its levels, but um, yes, it's a concept of a mutually beneficial result. Well, that's good for me. Good for me, and you know the millions of people that have started listening to this podcast in the last—I can't remember—you know, three years or something. Sorry, <laughs> stop you mid-flow. But, but just to say on on Nicola, who is this um, extraordinary figure? I mean, there's a few things. First of all, after he saved Crotone, he did this um, bike ride all the way up Italy, his own sort of personal Giro d'Italia, where he went up to Torino and um, um, from from uh, Crotone and and. Uh, that was in honor of his son who who died in a bike accident. And this time he's promised to walk to um from Salerno to the Vatican um by foot, which is I think I checked on Google Maps about a 57-hour walk. So good luck for, for that one. But he also, you know, he's been a very colorful figure this season and and thinking about him walking. Uh, it's sort of one of the my iconic images of this City A season is there was a game a few weeks ago where he um was losing his temper with his players and he whipped his shoe off and threw it down the sideline. Then he went and got it and he was standing on the sideline sort of waving his shoe like a, an angry grandparent threatening someone with a slipper. And um, yeah, he's a, he's a character. He's not a Sam Allardyce, I don't think. He's something different, but he's certainly got a personality. I'm wondering if the biscotto, you say it's got to do with horse racing and has it got anything to do with sea biscuit? you know, the famous horse? <laughs> 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 I actually don't know anything about horse racing, so I'm, I'm aware that there was a serious skit. Uh, can we just, uh, you know, it's the Europa Conference League final tomorrow. Uh, Roma playing Feyenoord. Uh, it's worth seeing sort of how 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 much the Roma fans care about this. And, and you know, Roma's been an interesting story this year, isn't it? Getting smashed by Bodo Glimt, coming through, getting to this final. Tammy Abraham having an excellent season. Yeah, they care hugely about it. I think there's sort of this stain that lots of people have, have put towards the conference league, I get it. It's the third European competition. Roma haven't won a European competition other than the first cup against Birmingham City, right? So they are not a team used to winning European competitions. And I think that the the value of this for Roma, it's it's almost like self-selected, right? This competition was as important as you chose to say it was. And Jose Mourinho is the great narrative builder. He's the one who will come in and tell you, we want glory, we want Europe, we want to do this. And the fan base from day one have bought into Jose. Like even when the rest of Italy and and journalists in Italy were sort of scorning him for his results, which were poor for a time, including getting thumped by Bodo, he he has sort of had them eating out of his hand because they've always basically, the attitude for a lot of Roma fans has been, well, everyone else is wrong and he's the one who's won the Champions League. So clearly he's the one who knows what he's talking about. And he's turned this into a huge deal for them. You saw it at the semi-final against Leicester. I think lots of people who went from England for that Leicester game were a bit astonished by ha- by the atmosphere that Roma had for that semi-final. And that's because for Roma, especially with the league season not being that great, with them sort of puttering into Europa League spot, never really getting into that Champions League fight, they have put all their eggs in this basket. They have turned it into their rallying cause. There are going to be 50,000 fans at the Stadio Olimpico just to watch a big screen for this game. So the game is hugely sort of valued by by the, the club and the fans. And again, I, I think that's sort of 
I can see I can see why people have looked at this competition, which actually has been really fun. It's been some really fun games this competition, but I can see why people have looked at it and gone, you know what, we've got enough football. We've got the Champions League. We've got the Europa League, which we already disdain. We're not going to put any sort of value on this. But I think there's sort of this need in football coverage sometimes to only value the biggest thing, the most important thing, the Champions League, and everything else is rubbish. These are still fans of a club who follow their club for however many years, who've not seen them win again a European competition other than the Fairs Cup in the 60s. Why not? Why not make this into a big event? Why not treat it as something that's worthy and important? You're going to play Feyenoord, who have won the European Cup before, who have got a European history. I think it's, I don't know, I'm excited for this game. I, I think Roma's Conference League has been fun to watch, but certainly people in Rome have taken it very, very seriously. Uh, Mark, I don't know if your expertise goes as far as the Eredivisie, but, but you know, what can we expect from Feyenoord? Well, in terms of um, Feyenoord, I've watched their semi-final against Marseille um, and... Uh, I don't know, is there a cliche about it being a game of two legs? I'm not sure. But it was um, the first game was very chaotic um, and, and uh, you know, a, a crazy game that I think you kind of associate with Dutch teams in terms of a lot of goals, a 1-3-2, um, and you know, there, there were defensive errors and a lot of attacking football. Actually, in the, the second leg um, against Marseille, in what was, again, quite a hostile environment for final to play, and the Marseille fans seemed very up for it, even though they were going for the Champions League and you know that that, that was very important for, for the club as well. They still wanted to win. They were able to ride that out and defend um you know really well um against Marseille, albeit a Marseille team that lost Payet to injury in the first half and maybe um you know that, that did um sort of certainly make Marseille less of an attacking threat. But I mean, I think we've got this cliche about Dutch teams. And if you remember when Mourinho um, beat Ajax in, in the Europa League, he gave a dossier on on how he sort of um, tore them apart, really, and just waited for them to, to, to make the, the kind of defensive errors that, that they pounced upon. And, um, you know, I'm not sure Peter Bosch has really ever recovered from, um, from, from that because his tactics have just been constantly questioned ever since wherever he's been after Mourinho sort of quite sort of just said how easy it was to beat them. I think that Feyenoord, I don't see them falling into that trap against Roma if it does become that type of game. They, they look tactically um, astute enough, I think, against Marseille to suggest that you know they're, they're well in this game. Um, they, I think the Eredivisie is probably... Um, better now than it has been for a while. PSV have, have got a decent team and, you know, final were not that far away from them in terms of the, the Eredivisie um, sort of league plays in this season. Ajax, obviously a very good team as well. So I think Dutch football um, is on the rise and they've been very excited by the Europa Conference. I think that, you know, th- this league has been one um, that's found it very difficult with the way that Euro- European football has become to even challenge at the Europa League level. And so many of their teams have dropped down into the Europa Conference and have gone far. We've seen Vitesse, PSV and Feyenoord have, have good European campaigns. So, um, yeah, I, I understand why um, yeah, M- Mourinho will, will be taking it seriously. But I think Feyenoord, this is a big moment for them. And for I, I think for the Europa Conference whoever wins I think there will be a success to come out of it because either you've got a really big club and a big name that wins it in Mourinho and Roma or you get why I think the competition was kind of created for this next level of European teams it's a really challenge Alright that'll do for part two Philippe you're in a hurry to go and do something I wouldn't say more important Mm. but important so you may leave now if you so desire Yes but I think before I leave I have to um, to um, give you a quote 
um, that you might have seen uh, from uh, our friend, yes, please. Our friend uh, Mr. Motsepe. Let me find it. Okay, just to remind everybody who Mr. Motsepe is. Yeah, uh, Patrick Motsepe is the uh, head of uh, the African, Confed African Confederation. And he's currently in, uh, or he was in Davos with um, uh, a FIFA delegation, uh, which had uh, Jenny Infantino, of course, uh, who you know, served his usual platitudes. Arsene Wenger was there too. And Patrice Motsepe certainly made a few people, um, well, um, stand up um, and wonder what exactly he had just said. But uh, he did say it, and I'm quoting, Every time I'm in Qatar, I see thousands of people from all over the world having the privilege and the excitement of employment and taking money home with the building of the stadiums, the building of the hotels, it has huge benefits for our people. I don't think this deserves uh, any other comment. I don't think it does. Um, obviously, we will keep talking about that as well. Cheers, Philippe. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Max. My pleasure. All right. Uh, Philippe Auclair there. Um, he'll be back soon, but we'll be back for part three where we'll round up La Liga, Germany, any other business. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Uh, welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, so uh, let's rattle through La Liga and the Bundesliga. Real Madrid won the title. Barcelona, Atleti, Sevilla in the Champions League. Betis and Sociedad in the Europa League. Villarreal be in the Conference League. Real Betis won the Cup. Uh, Granada, Levante and Alaves relegated. Karen Benzema was the uh, uh, top scorer. 27 goals uh, he scored. I, I guess, Mark, Real Madrid is now all about the Champions League and what an utterly ridiculous run they've had uh, we will talk about it on Thursday again but it, it's impossible to write them off isn't it <laughs> yeah yeah they they um, go well in the Champions League quite often um not can't really make much sense necessarily of how they they do it or sort of why it happens but um it, it does and uh, they fancy the chances of beating Liverpool I was um I was sort of speaking to some Spanish journalists yesterday and we there was like a round table of who they thought would win I think there were five Spanish people in there and they all felt that Real Madrid would, would win, which goes against, I think, the fact that, you know, Liverpool are seen as the favourites. But, um, you know, they weren't all Real Madrid fans, but they all expected Real Madrid um, to win. They, they, they've they been the best team in La Liga you know, and the most consistent team in La Liga this season. Of course, it's hard to know just how strong La Liga is at, at the moment. Um, you look at... Barcelona have had their obvious problems throughout the season. I don't think that this is a, a great Atletico um, side. Um, you know, somebody like Griezmann, I think it's like 14, 15 games now without um, scoring and that there'll have to be some kind of rebuild there um, over the summer. I think they'll they'll probably look to to try to build this next team around Gel Felix, or at least they should be looking um, to do that. Sevilla finished fourth, but were, you know, that they were beaten 
by West Ham in in the Europa League. Um, but then it gets a little bit confusing because Villarreal finished seventh, and yet they've reached the the, the, the semi-finals of the Champions League. So um, not much of it makes sense um, at, at the moment. But I, I definitely think that the Real Madrid um, will believe that they've got the team and the tools to hurt Liverpool. I think the Vinicius on the left-hand side against Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back um, could decide the game. Really, who's brave enough to to play their normal game? Vinicius doesn't like to go backwards. Um, Alexander Arnold will just come forward at all, all times. So I, th- yeah, I, th- I think it'll be a really fun final. Quite often finals can can be tense, and we've seen a lot of them go to penalties um, this season. I, I mean, it might go to penalties the way Real Madrid, Madrid sort of fight on, but I think it'll be a fun game. I think there'll be goals at both ends, and you know, really looking forward to it. It's an interesting question from Rob about those that that. Real Madrid midfield saying, look, given all they've won and accomplished together, should Cruz, Casemiro and Modric be viewed with the same esteem as Xavi, Iniesta and Busquets? I don't know if they are or not, or is it simply they just don't, they're just not quite as pretty. Modric aside, you know, it's not like a beautiful thing to watch. They don't do perfect triangles, those three, like, you know, Xavi, Iniesta and Busquets. I wonder if it's something in in the style of of how they are as well, though, because Barcelona have always been about this very, well, not always, but in this era, have been very much about this sort of very clear identity of how they play and, you know, this sort of symbiotic team that all sort of works as one fluid thing. Whereas I feel like this particular Real Madrid season hasn't always been like this, but it almost feels like it's the victory of the individual talent, right? It's it's the ability of no matter, like, if you are being sort of uh, pushed back or, or outmaneuvered at times against a team like, like um, PSG or, or City or anyone, the capacity for... Vinicius or Benzema or whoever else to do something has has what's carried them along and and even though perhaps it, you know that's too dismissive of what they do collectively because of course you don't actually win a football game by not cooperating with each other there's something in the way that the stories are told of these teams and going all the way back to the very first Galacticos the way that Real Madrid sell themselves is these are a set of stars who are all stars in their own right whereas I guess Xavi Iniesta, it's all about Xavi Esther, isn't it? It's all about one word. It's all about one one sort of uh, one body, I guess, is the way they want to present themselves. Yeah, I think as well, there was also the fact that the kind of, you know, um, all came through. I, I know Iniesta um, sort of wasn't, I don't think he was born in, in Barcelona, was he? But I mean, they all came through La Masia. Um, and so there's probably that element as well of them all being schooled together. Talking about Xavi, I mean, it's interesting at the start of this season, we were talking to Sid about, you know, this being an absolute crisis for Barcelona. You know, they might not qualify for the Champions League. You know, they got hammered, didn't they, in that first game of the of, of this year's Champions League by Bayern Munich. And you were just like, God, they are hopeless, this team. And and you sort of saw, saw, saw Busquets kind of walking around going, what am I still, what am I doing here? You know, this is just, it's completely gone wrong. So actually, this season hasn't been as much of a disaster and, and you know Xavi is good I guess and we didn't know if he was I, I think he's brought kind of a sense of pride and sort of the sort of Barcelona-ness um, back to, to the club and they they'd lost that a, a bit under Ronald Koeman who was um, playing some long balls a lot of crosses um, um, into the area and wasn't what the fans wanted I think that they believe in Xavi what he's trying to do um, I think finishing second maybe says a lot about um, 
what I was mentioning earlier, really about sort of the inconsistencies with some of the other teams in La Liga at the moment. It wasn't perfect. I mean, they lost to Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League, and that was a competition they they really took seriously and, and were picking their best team. But I think you can see um, definitely the shoots of recovery, um, at least particularly in the midfield, Gavi and Pedri might, you know, they hope become that Xavi and Iniesta. And um, I still think that they need some work. You know, Dembele hasn't signed his new contract um, yet. I mean, I think Aubameyang, in terms of a stopgap centre-forward, is fine. But the one that they really want is Lewandowski. And they're going um, all out um, to try to get him away from Bayern. But uh, Bayern Munich are adamant that they won't be letting Lewandowski leave. And they'd rather see out the final year of his contract um, before leaving on a free transfer. Uh, Baz, you wanted to talk about the, the relegation in La Liga. Yeah, I know we're a bit stuck for time, but um, it was a thriller and it, it sort of really put the Burnley-Leeds drama and knocked <laughs> it into a cocked hat because uh, Granada, Levante, Alaves, as you said, were relegated, but uh, Cadiz, Mallorca and Getafe all stayed up just by a solitary point. I think going into the last game, Granada were the only team who had their destiny in their own hands and they were at home and uh, there was 27 different combinations or outcomes and in only four of those they went down and go down they did. They they could only draw nil-nil, missed a penalty, uh, so Granada go down and it's worth looking out uh, Sid's column from Monday which captures it perfectly in Sid's usual excellent breathless style yeah yeah uh, the penalty was missed by George Molina who's 40 you just think oh that is rough isn't it you know I don't know why I don't know why it feels worse if a 40 year old does it in the 87th minute um, there was a penalty given against Caddies um, that was overturned um, on, on VAR for a hand uh, well, the referee initially said handball, but it wasn't. So um, there was even that moment just before the end where maybe Granada thought they'd be safe and Cadiz would would be relegated after all. But the referee went to the screen and and I, I overturned his initial decision. So Barry's right, it was a very dramatic end um, to, to the bottom of La Liga. Bundesliga, Bayern Munich uh, won the title again. Uh, Dortmund, Leverkusen and Leipzig in the Champions League. Union Berlin and Freiburg in the Europa League. Uh, Kölner in the Conference League. Um, RB Leipzig won the cup. Relegated Greuterfurth, Armenia, and uh, that's not Armenia, the country, by the way, I should point that out. They're not in the Bundesliga. And, Mark? Well, it was, yeah, it was the fact that Hamburg didn't go up. It was a relegation playoff between Hamburg and, and Hertha. Uh, Hamburg were 1 0 up from the first leg, so the second division team had it in their hands going to the home match. Um, but Hamburg, as so often Hamburg do, found a way. Um, for it to go wrong. Um, and Herta came back. Boyata equalised very early on. And then Plattenhart with a free kick from out wide. Um, it was either a great goal or one of those mishit crosses that, that flew into the, the sort of the, the back corner. I've, I've, Plattenhart is very good on set pieces. So I think he may well um, have meant it. And it did mean that, that Felix McGat kept Herta up at the expense of the club where he, of course, scored um, a, a European Cup goal um, in, in a final. So um, a legend once at Hamburg, but he, he certainly hurt the, the club last night. Before we leave the Bundesliga, Mark, it, can Dortmund challenge Bayern next season? Can anybody get close? I mean, Haaland going is not great, is it, to start with? No, it's, it's not great. I mean, um, Dortmund 
brought in a new coach um, yesterday, um, Edin Terzic, who was actually the old coach that, that stepped in um, last season, won the German Cup, was then sort of behind the scenes again for most of um, this campaign. And Marco Rosa um, was given these marching orders at the end of the campaign. And um, Terzic has come back now. I think there's some question marks as to whether he's actually good enough. The players really liked him when he was in the interim role. He, like I say, won the Cup. Also won 20 of his 32 games. He's a fan of the club. So I think that there's a lot of goodwill um, towards him. But whether he's that kind of Klopp-like figure that maybe Dortmund need to um, overcome the obvious handicap of them not having players as good as Bayern Munich, um, I'm, I'm not so sure. So um, I think we'd hope to have um, a title race next season. But I would be doubtful. Even if Lewandowski goes, you assume that, that Bayern will sign somebody that's good enough to sort of win them the league at least. Uh, Josh says, would Barry have scored Balotelli's Rabona goal yesterday? Um, this extraordinary <laughs> goal he scored. I, th- I think I'd have tripped over my own feet on step over number two. <laughs> I think I think you'd have done well to get away with without any broken bones or some torn ligaments, I think. Uh, he's playing for Adana Demispor. He is, Barry, just quite... Well, the thing I was thinking about is, you know, like when he's doing that, is is he thinking I'm going to do seven of these? Like, 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 because like, normally with a bit of skill, like a player, like Lamella scored a Rabona, and you go, I'm going to do a Rabona, I do a Rabona, or like I'm going to do a step over, uh, I'm going to cut inside. But surely, like after three, is he just going fuck it? I'll see how many I can do. It's it's insane goal. I think asking me to try to figure out what's going on in the mind of Mario Balotelli at any time is is a, a fool's errand. Can, can we not get Barry to attempt it? Can, can Barry, can you not attempt that during a live show, maybe, if we get a, get a football out? It's a very good idea. I'm not sure we'd be insured for that kind of stunt work. I'd have to get a stand-in. Maybe we could get Mario along, but yeah, what a goal. I mean, I... I Let's not overthink it. He just did it and it's fantastic. And, you know, we do spend a lot of time thinking about trophies and, you know, who wins what. But actually just delivering that sort of magnificence is sort of, is sort of part of what the whole sport is about, I think. I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical about it, but what, just how, you know, to have been there to see that, it just been absolutely glorious, I I absolutely loved it. Are you saying you'd rather see that than Kylian Mbappe signing a new three-year contract? <laughs> I think so. I think that doesn't bring you as much joy. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Um, but you know, I'm not Fabrizio Romano, who did tell me once he prefers transfers to the football, <laughs> which just <laughs> seems seems slightly ludicrous. But you know, whatever floats your boat. I guess. I think a lot of people are like that now. I really do. Like, I, I'm not like that either, but I, I think there's a significant football supporting demographic that are more interested in the transfer news than are interested in the actual games. Well, actually, there was a really interesting piece in Sean Ingle's piece, going back to Mbappe, and we might as well go full circle on this pod, when he was talking about, you know, the fact that football in, in many, and we know we've seen Bayern run away with the title and PSG run away with the titles, they always do. And, and you know, City winning four in five in the UK and saying, look, comparing it to... The states where in baseball they've had eight World Series winners in the past decade, five further teams finishing as runners-up. In other words, 13 
of baseball's 30 teams have fought for the biggest prize in the last decade. In hockey, in ice hockey, 14 of the league's 32 clubs have played in a Stanley Cup final since 2012. In the NFL, it's 13 out of 32, you know, and you can go from sort of also rands to Super Bowl contenders within a couple of years because of obviously how the whole thing's set up. And yet football's popularity doesn't seem to be being dented by the fact that we basically know what's going to happen, which is interesting, I guess. I mean, I, I you'd love it that it, it would be that egalitarian, but it isn't. No, and it's going to be increasingly less egalitarian in the coming years and maybe at some point people will start to get bored hopefully after i've retired because it's quite it's quite it's quite a nice way to earn a living uh road high <laughs> says um little outside the euro remit but how is carl jenkinson not in the a-league all-star team max um uh, good to see ex spyright jay o'shea make it there though yes uh carl jenkinson um, I think I saw this happen, but uh, yeah. he plays for Melbourne City, who lost in the semi-finals. It is the A-League Grand Final this weekend. Western United versus Adelaide United. Um, so good luck to both of them. Joel says, why did Jack Grealish look like he was in a colour me bad cover band during Man City's parade? I quite enjoy really just footballers being pissed and enjoying themselves. And it was quite fun to see him saying that they won the league because Bernardo Silva was taken off because he wasn't up, he wasn't playing very well. And then Bernardo saying we won because Jack Grealish was left on the bench. But look, they had a lovely day and they probably deserved it. And finally, uh, I think youngest listener to Football Weekly, um, we have a vote from Andrew who says, I've got my two-day-old little boy ready for his first Football Weekly. Uh, usually a Tuesday morning podcast for me when I'm working in Australia. I'm imagining it might be through the night today. Hello to Andrew's two-day-old, now three-day-old uh, son, uh, who is now listening to his second Football Weekly. So almost as many pods as days old. Um, you're very welcome. Um, if anyone has a younger listener, do get in touch. Uh, <laughs> Football Weekly at theguardian.com. Uh, and that'll do for today. Uh, cheers, Barry. Thanks, Max. Uh, thank you, Nikki. Thanks, Max. Cheers, Mark. Cheers, Max. Uh, we'll be back on Thursday looking at the Europa Conference League, looking ahead to the Champions League final in a bit more detail. Today's pod was produced by Joel Grove with Silas Gray. Our executive producer is Max Silas. This is The Guardian. 